hello, everybody. Welcome to this episode of the What's Next podcast. I'm your host, Tiffany Bova, and I have the awesome pleasure to welcome Heather McGowan to the show. We met last year, I think, at an event in Santa Barbara, and she was cool and funky and fun and smart. And I was like, ooh, you? You need to come on the podcast. And then she had a book come out, and I said, perfect timing. So Heather is one of the leading voices on the future of work. Her groundbreaking approach to learning has made employees more fulfilled and innovative, leaders more potent and empathetic, and businesses more effective at reaching their goals in a rapidly evolving market. Her new book, as I mentioned, is called The Empathy Advantage with her co-author, Chris Shipley, and it's what we are going to dig in today. But before we do that, we have to do bullish and bearish. Bullish is your for it. Bearish is your against it. Are you ready, Heather? Let's roll. All right. Empathetic AI. Bullish or bearish? Skeptical. <laughs> All right. We'll go with that. I've not had anybody ever pick another one, but okay, we'll go with skeptical. All right. The next one. Empathy as a performance driver. Oh, definitely bullish. Okay. And the third one, a little more fun. Vinyl records making a comeback. Oh, bullish. Yeah. All right. You know, you just got to have a little fun. Like all of a sudden there's been this surge of vinyl records. I'm like, this is cool. Can I dust mine off? But what will I play them on? (laughs) You don't have a record player? We have a record player in our kitchen. Yeah, I don't have one anymore. And so they make these little to. They're making them again. So you had to go back and buy like the new versions of them with better sound systems and all that. Okay. Well, I have, you know, the dozen I think I've kept, you know, through the lifetime that I have left. Um, You know, I I will, uh, I will look into that maybe for, for the holidays. All right. So let's start at the top because I'm sure like you, I am not as versed on using empathy as performance and resilience drivers, which we'll talk about in a second. But whenever I use the term empathy, I kind of get two reactions. If I'm, you know, face to face with someone, I get the, Ooh, you know, like, Oh, here we go. We're going to talk about that soft stuff, that squishy stuff, that stuff that makes no sense to me or makes me uncomfortable. Right. Right. Or the other side of that is, I mean, they lean in, they're like, yeah, let's talk about it. Right. I get it. And do you find that same kind of reaction? Yes. And I think even more so now than I would have a year or two ago. So in the height of the pandemic, I think we understood the power of empathy. And when you really look at what's happened in the last five consecutive quarters, we've had five consecutive quarters of declining profitability. And all the assumptions are is because we've been too soft. And we really look at what we've done over the last five quarters is that when we stopped being empathetic, we've stopped being human, we stopped connecting with each other. So we had an increase in engagement. We had an increase in trust in the pandemic. In the last five quarters, we've had a decline in engagement, a decline in, in trust, and a decline in performance. And people are not connecting those things. Well, there's so much to unpack there, right? So it would be almost like if you could pick a bank that just recently failed, it was like, oh yeah, that the reason why is because, you know, yeah. ESGs or you're, you know. Exactly. It's like, yeah, the ESGs are absolutely the reason that they, you know, <laughs> snaked bank regulations. <laughs> that's why. Yeah, that's yeah. why. Um, I digress, sorry. Uh, but I think that the understanding of it, so if you, if someone walked up to you, you know, and was skeptical, like to this point, right, you could rattle off the stats, like you just said, like we were growing and then profitability drops and you could tie it to these things. And, you know, it, it, is there a direct correlation? You could point to things, but just at the human level, if someone is resistant to it, 
do you, how do you begin to get them to have a little bit of a beginner's mind, right? Instead of that fixed mindset, like that's just woke rhetoric. Like it's nothing that I have anything to do with. Like I manage this way, right? Yeah. yeah. So fortunately what I do for a living is I, I, I have those conversations. So just yesterday I was in Chicago at a biotech company and I've done a new thing in my talks now. I give every, everyone, give me a one word. And so if I'm speaking about leadership or future work, whatever the topic is, give me one word right now. What do you think that's about at the beginning? And then I do my talk and then I ask them to give me a one word at the end. And you see a dramatic difference in what they perceive that topic to be in just 45 minutes. So the beginning, especially when it's around future work, the word is always flexible or hybrid work. That's where everybody is focused and obsessed. And then at the end of it, it becomes more about trust, belonging, empathy, performance, collaboration, engagement. They start seeing it differently. They start getting less focused on that. Because what I think happened prior to the pandemic, we had sort of two circles of our lives. One circle was our personal life, which is the fodder for our eulogy. The other circle was our professional life, which is a fodder for our resume. And our resume circle was huge and cast a shadow on the littler circle that was our professional life. And we had agency over our professional life. And what happened in those 1,000 days is one circle grew, one circle shrank, and they became uh, pretty much like 50% overlapped. And we had agency over both. And out of a necessity, we were empathetic to our people. We were compassionate. We were human. We checked in with them. We asked how they were doing. And we saw a rise in engagement, stabilized trust, rise in performance. And then we come out of it, we start seeing some economic headwinds and we throw that all away. We threw away everything we learned and we're like, now we got to go back. And everyone gets focused on it being about the office when I don't think it has anything to do with the office at all. And it has to do with agency, autonomy, and being human at work. Well, I couldn't agree more. And, and I say this when I'm in, you know, talking with executives or even on stage, you know, that I feel like, We've snapped back to bad habits. Yeah. That we've snapped back to old behavior. Yeah. And, you know, I, I use this example often where I say, as employers, we trusted our employees when they were sitting in cubes. And then we send them home to continue to work. And now all of a sudden, there was like, now we don't trust you. <laughs> it's like, we so- did. But the thing is, we did trust them. For, initially, we did trust them and we didn't start the surveillance software and all that other stuff until the tail end of it. And that's when we started seeing a decline in productivity. So some people were, were suggesting it was because people were working from home and quiet quitting and all this other you know crap. And then somebody else looked at it and said, well, wait a second, no. We actually had sustained relatively good performance in a crisis, in a major existential crisis. And performance stayed high and it started to drop when we started to question them. Yeah, and I agree. And the surveilling software is one example, right? That the yeah. sale of surveillance software for employees like went up 3,000%. And some yeah. call center agents actually had to leave their camera on all the time. Yeah. And not everybody has the ability to have a private space to work in from home. Yeah. They're in their kitchens, their bedrooms, their kids' room, their bathroom. You know, not everybody has, I have three bedrooms and I have an office in my home. Or yeah. they don't have that, that uh, availability, right? But I, I think also what, what happened and what came through, which I feel like we've also stepped away from, is a little bit of this vulnerability, right, mm-hmm. of this, like, I'm struggling. Like, would people feel as comfortable today as they did 12 months ago or 18 months ago in the height of all this uncertainty and this 100-year pandemic, et cetera, that I could say to somebody, I'm struggling, and not feel like you were going to get 
judged, if you will, or something, you know, else, like you're not going to be asked to do things anymore, whatever the response might have been, where during that time, it was like, okay, how can we help you? Like, here are resources. Right. And one of the rising topics now, since I speak for a living, is people want people to speak on resilience. So I spoke on resilience yesterday to one client. And I was like, you know, I think the thing everyone's getting wrong is you think that resilience is going back, everyone concealing their struggles and their weaknesses and pushing for more. When actually the research shows if you name the state, this is uh, Dr. Sven Hansen, if you name your emotional state, so be fear, depression, anxiety, whatever it may be, you have a 50% chance of changing that state. If you don't name it and you conceal it, you only got a 4% chance. So if I'm struggling with depression, anxiety, I'm overwhelmed, whatever it might be, if I say, listen, I'm struggling with this thing. He says, you know, you go through the act of name it, claim it, reframe it. You can't get down that line unless you get to name it and sharing it with somebody else so you can figure out how to deal with it. Well, you, you know, and, and I think it's a power, that's a powerful message. So, you know, if you're listening and you're, you're feeling any of those things, like, yep. you know, find somebody, name it, right? claim it, reframe yep. it, but feel safe in being able to do so. Do you think that this battle now between where people work you know, this sort of step function of we're going to totally work remotely and then, okay, now we're going to be hybrid. Nope. Now ev mandate, everyone has to come back to the office. Where are you falling on this ability to allow, continue maybe to allow flexibility? You mentioned it right at the beginning of the talk, when you ask a word, they say work yeah. from anywhere, right? Flexibility. And then it shifts. Yeah. That's kind of top of mind. Where are you sitting on that topic? I think one, we don't know. We have nothing but biases. We really don't know. We know that for you know some portion of a thousand days, a lot of people did work from home and we had pretty damn good business continuity because we trusted our people. Is that the way it should go going forward? I have absolutely no idea. I think what we should do is study it. What are the tasks? What are the activities? When should we come together? I, I was talking to one of my clients last week who was like, yeah, I hear you and all that, but we have this real estate and it's very expensive. I said, okay, Time out. Are you in the real estate optimization business? What business are you in? Let's start with what you're trying to do and then make the decision about the real estate. I think there's so many biases about leaders who are successful in a certain arena. So if you were Gen X or Boomer, and I'm just going to over categorizing here, you were probably successful because you missed your kid's soccer game. You worked on Saturday. You bought into presenteeism and you may not trust people you cannot see. You're not going to be successful leading this next workforce if you have that mindset as the only pathway to success. There are other ways. We have tools. We have technologies. We've proven some things. Now we need to do some real hardcore experiments across. Nick Bloom's got some stuff that says, you know, if you're doing tasks in isolation, you have like a 0.5% increase in productivity if you're working home alone. That's only a small percentage of how, and how we work. So what are the tasks? What are the environments? Who are the people? When should we come together? How should we come together? How frequently? In what spaces? I think those experiments around real business performance would be very welcome right now because I think everybody's acting like they're in the real estate optimization business and it's all filled with cognitive biases. But I don't have an agenda about where work should take place. I just think we should do it based on some research. So we launched something called like a flex working agreement. And so it was kind of by team, by office, by role, by, you know, and so, okay, you're a team, you as a team get to decide what's your flex working and, mm -hmm. you know, you come together yeah. two days a week. Do you come together one week a month? You know, when a project kicks off, you know what I'm saying? Like you decide because there are still many roles that have to be in the office, sure. you know, right? And so does it mean that they can't 
you know, work from home every once in a while, but there are some that sort of need to be in the office. And then there are others where, you know, you could say, you know, a sales rep who's a field sales rep was never in the office anyway. So it's kind of no disruption, right? They had to learn how to work from home and sell from home, but they'd been working not in the office for a very long time. We're a call center agent. Maybe I have to be in the call center. And then that, I'm going to shut down the call center and push everyone home. There was no technology, you know, in place to get them ramped up fast enough. Mm -hmm. Um, But the flex work agreements is where I tend to land and go almost what you say, right? Where you go, go by team, go by role, right? Go by office. You can't have warehouse people working from home. No, I mean, I did did a talk for De Beers Diamonds and it was like, yeah, I get it. You can't cut and polish a diamond in your spare bedroom. You just simply can't. There are so many jobs you cannot do from home. But I, I like the other approach. So I, I, I've heard the team approach. I love that from an organizational standpoint. But then I think there's also the individual standpoint. There may be some people, and I'm talking working moms here, working moms, working moms, working moms, because we have no caregiving infrastructure in this country, who may say, I only want to work at home. That may mean you can only do certain jobs or you can only be on certain pathways. You can only be in certain teams. And that should be a viable path as well. Yeah, I, I agree. I agree. And I think that a lot of that was uncovered during that thousand days, right? Yeah. Where we we really saw and became empathetic to people's, oh, she's working in her kitchen or her kid's bedroom or, you know, whatever or the case might be. kids on her shoulders. Yeah. Or their laps, whatever whatever yeah. it might be, yeah. right? Yeah. Uh, you know, the very first time, right, that newscaster was doing an yeah. interview, right? And the kid came in and we all laughed or whatever. And then that became reality, right? Yeah. And it was yeah. reality for lots of people. Let, let me pivot a little bit. And, and thank you for that, because I, I do believe there is a lot of misunderstanding around the word empathy. Um, And and I think if you, you know, caught the first 15 minutes of this conversation, hopefully you will have a different opinion of what that means. Yeah. Um, But I do believe that there's also been outside of the individual empathetic understanding, there is the leader who has been pushed, right, to be more empathetic, more transparent, more vulnerable, more people-centered. And I know you've got some thoughts around that from the book specifically that I'd love for you to dig into. Can you start kind of start at the top and and dig into what that looks like? Sure. So I I learned by my own mistakes and they are plentiful. (laughs) So I was given a talk in uh, Arizona, two talks in one week, both in commercial real estate. And it was on the heels of I had given a talk to investment bankers, top of their game, who had been successful in the office arena. They had been there 10 o'clock at night. They had been there on Saturday mornings. They had worked 60, 80 hours a week, 90 hours a week, 100 hours a week. And I was telling them about this new empowered workforce they were going to lead. That was less to do with presenteeism. It was less to do with the office. It was less to do with sacrifice. It was more to do with purpose. It was more to do with values. And they called me woke and soft. And they said, this is, you know, <laughs> that's, you know, all, all, all of those words. And I was like, okay. And then I walked away from it and I thought, what, what did I miss? And I think the thing I missed was the opportunity to be empathetic to them. Because we're now asking leaders who were brought up in one environment to lead in another environment, which is asking them to be very different than who they were and who they were encouraged to be and to lead with very different sets of rules and values than the ones in which they were led. So the next two talks I did, which were both commercial real estate, so it was kind of the same profile of audience, but I took a different approach. I said, listen, I get it. This is uncomfortable. It might tick you off a little bit. It might seem unfair, but you are not going to continue to be successful if you led the way you were led. And you have to meet this workforce differently and you have to approach them differently. You have to understand that they care and they are going to respond to different things. 
And I found over the course of between the two talks, guys were coming up to me in the elevator and hugging me and telling me to thank you. They've been uncomfortable. They don't know what to do. Uh, one guy told me that he had changed the way he had run meetings and sent me a note afterwards that he got a completely different response from the people he was leading. And so I realized that there was, I needed to be much more explicit with my empathy for the leaders because we have leaders now who came up in a very different environment than the one in which we're asking them to lead. And they were rewarded for behaviors that were now punishing. And we have to have empathy for those, those leaders for that very reason. And if you're listening to this, I get it. You sacrificed and this next group is not going to sacrifice in the same way that you did. It's not fair. Well, there's, there's a few things in there I, I, I want to dig into. I also feel like part of this is, I don't know what percentage part, and you may not agree, but I'll give it a shot, that when you're moving up in the ranks, like, you know, I'm a individual contributor, now I'm a team lead, you know, maybe I'm a first-time manager, and then I get more responsibility and more responsibility, you know, and I'm moving up, you know, yep. over time. Let's say that that was my aspiration. So that now the room of people that you were standing in front of in the first one, right, where you sort of, it just fell flat. They were just like, yeah. what is she talking about? With each move, we didn't do a lot to actually teach and train leaders how to be managers, how to be coaches, like how to be those people that are guiding the next generation. Right. It was more of that, like you just said, right? The behavior was very rewarded. So I'm mm. going to run my team how I worked and then I expect them to work how I worked. And then you just kind of create this virtuous cycle, right? Of everyone working 60, 80 work because that's what my boss does. And if that's what my boss does, that's how I'm going to move up because that's how they moved up, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Yep. I feel like we now have an opportunity that when people are moving up, that organizations really stop and pause and go, hold on, like, let's make sure this leader has a balanced understanding, like what you just said, like how to run a better meeting, Yeah. <laughs> right? Yeah. It could be something that tactical. It doesn't have to be, let me teach you how to be the CEO of the future who's going to be empathetic. and That's what I don't mean. So how do you feel about that training ladder, right? Or that coaching ladder as they move up? Absolutely. And the other thing that you, you said without saying is that we promulgated a certain profile of leader. Because if I was a certain race and a certain gender and a certain profile, I had the ability to display certain behaviors and not everybody has the ability to display so we ended up rewarding the same profile of people. So there was a picture that I put on, the, and it was part of a story I put on LinkedIn the other day, and it was a woman who became a CEO, and she became CEO in the middle of the pandemic. And so she was doing a Zoom meeting, but nobody could see it. She was breastfeeding her daughter because it was like below the neck. And her husband took a picture of her on the Zoom meeting breastfeeding, which nobody knew she was doing. And now, you know, after the pandemic, the picture goes out and she, she threw it out there and she was like, well, I just want to acknowledge that I had the ability to do this as a working mom and a CEO from home. And we don't see CEOs that way. We've never made accommodations for CEOs to breastfeed in the meeting. You know, so what are the profiles of the behavior? So yes, do we need to do the training so people are, are improving performance? Because what they were doing before is we were rewarding the behaviors and the assumption of what those behaviors were driving. But also embedded in there is, is the continuation of a single profile of leader. Yeah. And, and so if you are a leader listening, or I guess, Heather, you know, if, if there's a leader listening that's saying, I want to be better at this, I'm yeah. not very good at it. I want it to look authentic when I try to do something like this. What would be a few things they could lean into, right, to start to try to be more open to this kind of 
leading style? Well, if you, if you're a parent, this will make sense. I I am not, but people don't generally raise their children the same way. You know, you motivate your children in different ways. You get to know them. You know what they care about, what they're going to listen to, what punishments or words they're going to respond to, what incentives they're going to be excited about. Do the same thing with your people. I mean, you can understand the concept even if you don't have children because you probably came from a family. So treat your team as individuals and listen to them. What are they interested in? What would motivate them? How can you talk to them about what they're interested in? Because I'm, I'm a big fan of Frances Fry and her trust triangle. When her trust triangle is basically, you know, trust drives everything. We know that when you have trust, you have a better performance. When you have trust, you have better engagement. She says that her trust triangle comes to, do you think I'm authentic? And do you think I am delivering what I believe when I talk to you? Am I saying real things or am I saying what I've been told to say? Do I have a sound theory of the case when I'm, whatever I'm presenting to you in terms of where we want to go as an organization or as a team? Does it make sense? And I, do I have the ability to communicate it? And then third, do I have empathy? Do I care about you and your future? So as a leader, do you have an authentic connection with your people? Are you communicating a vision everyone can buy into? And do the, your people feel like you care about them and their development as part of this project that they're on or the pursuit that they're on, but also their own personal development along the way, which makes them a better employee because it, it adds organizational capacity, but adds to their own capacity and their own future. Well said. And, and I think that this is an area where when you talk to CEOs, especially, especially of large organizations that get this kind of people leadership right, everyone is fascinated by how they were able to do it. Yeah. <laughs> right. And, and then the responses from them, uh, I've had Uber Jolie on my, on my podcast in the past. He was the former CEO of Best Buy. And he was very people-centered leadership, right? Yeah. Ended up writing a book about it because everyone was trying to figure out, like, how did you do this? I mean, his first thing was, I don't know, the first week I was there, I dressed up in a Best Buy uniform and I went into a store and it said, you know, CEO learning, like as my name badge, right? Yeah. And I worked with the people and I listened to what they had to say and I spent time or the Costco founder, right? CEO, he was in a Costco six days a week, you know, yeah. or Herb Kelleher working on a Southwest flight. Like yeah. it is not rocket science. Like it is get out of the four walls, get away from your spreadsheet and your systems and those around you, right? That tend to think like you and behave like you yeah, and, and get down into the you know, belly of the organization and have those very same conversations, very kind of Tom Peters management by wandering around, right? Wander yeah. around, speak and listen and learn. And that requires you, I think, to use that word. You have to be empathetic to switch from hearing to listening yeah. and, and then yeah. not, not hearing to answer, but right. hearing to listen, right? That, right? That's a big shift. Right. And it's like having a conversation to get your point across or having a conversation to understand. And one more thing I was going to say, and it's, it's adjacent to what we were just talking about, is one of the shifts that I see needing to take place now is we've been rewarding leaders for the performance they drive today. And the problem with that is we have so much churn in the marketplace, whether it be, you know, great shuffle, great resignation, what have you, and we've got leadership burnout is we need leaders who are who have two eyes. One, the performance they're driving today, and two, the talent they're developing for tomorrow. And I think part of that puts you in that more human-led organization when you focus on, if I left tomorrow, would there be business continuity? Have I put a good succession plan in place? Have I developed people to their highest level of capacity every day? Is leadership, you know, as Francis says, you know, making people better in, by your presence so it lasts in your absence? That's, I think, the approach we need to take with leadership, and it definitely requires empathy. 
Well, Heather, this has been such a great conversation and so timely, and you've armed me personally with lots of ways in which when someone gives me the eye roll and we start talking about the soft, squishy stuff, <laughs> that I might have a better answer. So I'm going to end this with two final questions. Uh, one is one of my bullish and bearish, right, was asking that sort of empathy to drive greater productivity. Do people often ask you how to, I'm putting in air quotes, measure this kind of approach, an empathetic approach? Like when you say something like empathy as a performance driver, do they start to ask you, how do I measure that? I have not been asked specifically about how to measure it. I've been asked more about, well, how do I do it? How do I become more empathetic? Can people become more empathetic? And I think the first answer to that question is you can start by listening. The start, the beginning of empathy is just actually listening, trying to understand what somebody's saying, trying to understand what they're not saying. And I say the old kind of old adage, you know, if you look at the human head, there's one mouth, two eyes, two ears. One knows we have more input devices than we have output devices and we should cater our conversation in that way. And that will lead to more empathetic interactions. I, I, I think going back to the leaders who grew up leading and were led in a very specific time frame were very metrics driven mm-hmm. and they, and they worked and managed towards that metric, whatever that KPI was, right? Because yeah. if I do that, I get this, right? Kind of a thing. And then the second question is, because you had mentioned that, you know, one of the audience members ran a better meeting, let's give some parting thoughts on how to run a great meeting with more empathy. Yeah. And I got this and, and I get all my best advice from other people. So I like to say their name. Rashad Tabakawala and I shared a stage talking to ex- ad executives from Paramount. And he said the best way to run a meeting, especially across generations, is one of four questions. Your first, how are you? What's on your mind? Just an open-ended question. People can answer it in any way. You are being open with them. You are showing care. You're showing some vulnerability. Then how can I help you? How can I help you be more successful? What are you working on? What's in your way? How can I be of assistance? Then with the reality that many of us are managing teams of people who have skills and knowledge, we do not. How can you help me? Is there something you can help me understand that I don't know about, that I don't understand, that I I need more knowledge about, that I need more resources about, that I need more learning or training about? And then final one is, can we create a space where I give you feedback and you give me feedback? Not formally once a year, but regularly. If there's something on your mind, I want to keep the door open that you give me feedback so that I can, my job is to make you more successful. We used to have the mindset that I'm the boss and people work for me, but that's not the reality anymore. You are the leader and you work for your people and their success is your success because the chances are they have skills and knowledge that you do not, and you cannot make decisions in certainty as you once would. That is now a liability. So those four questions, what's on your mind? How can I help you? How can you help me? And can we give each other feedback? Easy, super easy. Well, Heather, this has just been such a great conversation. I thank you so much for spending time with us today on the What's Next podcast. If you haven't uh, read her book, The Empathy Advantage, go pick up your copy today. I'm sure you can pick it up at any bookstore that is around you. But how can people stay in touch with you, Heather, and continue to follow your great work? So I have, you know, like a website with everybody else. So for speaking and media and, you know, stuff about my book and my whereabouts, heathermcgowan.com. If you want to engage with me, correct me, which I love. Tell me I'm wrong, which I love even more because that's how I learn. I am very active on LinkedIn. You can, my network's open. You can connect to me. You can comment on articles. You can post an article and tag me in and say, hey, did you think about this? Because I probably didn't. 
and because of you, I will. Thank you. All right. Well, thank you so much. Thank you, Heather, again for joining us on this episode of What's Next. 